HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hello, Greenhorns. This is Greenhorn Radio, sponsored by Hearst Ranch, brought to you by Severn of the Greenhorns in Hudson Valley, New York. This is Radio for Young Farmers by Young Farmers. We're happy to be on Heritage Radio Network. And today I'm especially excited um, to invite onto the show um, longtime Greenhorn and wonderful urban gardener Brooke Budner. Brooke, are you there? Hi, Severn. Hi, Brooke. Hi. Welcome. Thank um, you. Usually in the beginning of the show, um, the person who's the guest introduces themselves, where they came from, and what they're doing. So my name's Brooke, Brooke Budner, and I run a garden project in San Francisco, California, with my business partner, Caitlin Galloway, and our project is called Little City Gardens. Um, it's an urban farming project, and um, we grow an artisanal salad mix, culinary herbs, and braising mix. And one of the primary focuses of our project is to experiment with the economic viability of small-scale urban farming. So we're trying to figure out if we can make a living doing this work in our city. So this is a wonderful garden, and those of you of our radio listeners who are familiar with the Greenhorns and have watched our trailer for the documentary film will have seen Brooks beautiful twinkly garden um, in the trailer, and it's a very small space, but you ex- have it been expanding your, your uh, space lately. Tell us about that, please. Yeah, um, so for the past year, we've been working on building this business and experimenting with our question, which is, can we earn a living wage? And we've been working for the past year in a space that is 50 by 50, which is extremely small for a farmer. It's a sixteenth of an acre. Um, and it's been a great opportunity to test out our crop rotations and figure out how to market and figure out what we want to be in our salad mix and all of that. Um, by the end of the year, we started to really, well, I think we were aware from the beginning, but especially towards the end of the year, realizing this is too small. We're just we're knocking our elbows against each other. We don't have enough time to rotate our crops properly and give the beds enough time to rest. Um, so by the end of the year, we realized if we really want to give this business a fair shot, we need quite a bit more space, at least three to four times as much space as we currently have. Um, so a big part of what we're doing this winter is stepping back from what we've been doing this year, which is growing and selling food and marketing and we are planning a big expansion. So we are, we've been looking for land around the city, larger urban lots, 
and we've been in conversations with landlords and property owners and whatnot um, to try to make negotiations about expanding. It's so exciting. So let's talk a little bit about the dynamic of growth and as you've been as you've been small and getting things going, mm-hmm. how that how has starting small been a blessing and mm-hmm. and what or not and what's going on with your marketing? How do you do your marketing? Okay, yeah, that's a really good question about it, whether it's, or not it's a blessing. I, I go back and forth about that because I think um, in a way we needed to start small because we. We, you know, both Caitlin and I, my business partner, have other jobs because our garden doesn't completely support us. It provides us a small stipend at this point, but it doesn't support us. So we both work on it about two days a week, um, which is not very much time, and it's hard to manage a lot of space in that much time. So we needed to start small for that reason. But also I think um, in order for people to build a project at a sustainable rate and for people to really um, be able to take you seriously, you have to have some experience with what, what you're doing and what you're selling um, in that you have to develop a product that you're selling. And sometimes it takes time to do that, and you can't necessarily just conceive of your product out of the blue without any real space to test it on. So our, um, our wonderful little no-rent negotiation with, with the current landlord that we have is a wonderful opportunity for us to, has been for us to experiment and to just focus on it a few days a week while also having the stability of our other jobs as income. So it's been a good, a good start, but we're really ready. We're, we're definitely ready to expand. We're ready to take it to the, a new level. Um, so this wonderful point about getting your product ready and really knowing your product, and in your case the product is a very special mixture of herbs and greens. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the, the mixtures of herbs and greens that constitute salad mixes around the country are very, very different, and people spend years developing and finessing that particular blend and the ratio of chervil and dot, 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 um, and then become really famous and beloved by chefs for those mixes. Um, as much as you, will, as, as you will share, tell us what, or what informed the, the mixture that you have now. Uh, that's a good question. Um, well, I think a lot of things informed it. One thing is um, the crop rotation that we figured out. We um, we decided that we wanted to be able to um, account for soil fertility within our crop rotation. So we designed a crop rotation that goes um, lettuce and then brassicas, which are you know topsoys, arugulas, mizunas, things like that, uh, and then fava fava greens, because the fava greens coming last uh, fix nitrogen, the nitrogen that the lettuces and the brassicas have uptaken and used in their growth. Um, So we do one-third, 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 or maybe it's more um, 20-20-20, and then the the remaining percentages are a really, really um, wide variety of things like mosh and miner's lettuce and nasturtium, calendula, all kinds of things. And it's actually highly variable depending on season because, of course, plants depend on the season. And we do a lot of foraging and wild crafting as well to add um, a little bit of element of surprise to our mix. So it's really beautiful. I, I love salad mix because it's, um, it's, really, it's really a value-added product, but it's also kind of an art project as well. Um, 
designing it and designing the colors and textures that go into it, are it really floats my boat. Um, well, I think it's floating a lot of boats. And, Brooke, <laughs> when you were first doing lettuce experiments and when I first met you, um, especially thinking about um, this, not this kind of meeting of agriculture and ecology, that was a while ago. Will you talk mm-hmm. a little bit about how you how you learned about growing and, and what has informed just your practice? Because you sure. were an artist before. You have, we have to tell people that. Yeah, yeah. I um, I was trained as an artist. I went to art school and I studied painting and printmaking, and that is a very big part of my identity, being an artist. And um, it's interesting, Severin, because I um, it's taken me a long time to get to the point where I am aware that agriculture and farming, gardening, is an art form in its own right. It's a, a very amazing art form. And um, for a long time, people said, oh, what, you know, why you were trained as an artist, so how'd you get into this whole farming thing? But to me, it's just a perfect logical leap because farming and gardening is like um, being, you know, having a 3D art project all around you all the time. And it, it really, I think, um, calls upon really the, you know, the height of one's creativity and intellect. So that's one thing. I, I don't want to, I, I want to make it clear that I really perceive of what I'm doing now and what we're doing with Little City Gardens as uh, artwork. But, um, yeah, I, I am a painter and a printmaker and an artist. And um, when I was in college doing that kind of work, I would take the summers off pretty much every summer and go work on farms um, both doing apprenticeships and also just being a laborer, and I did some travel farming and things like that. Um, and then when I moved to California, I did this amazing apprenticeship at a place called the Occidental Arts and Ecology Center, which uh, really was great for me because it's a, a center that has biointensive, really amazing, beautiful gardens, uh, teaching gardens, and they emphasize the artistic aspect of farming as well. So that was a great home, a home for me to find and place for me to learn. I had a, a great teachers there as well. Um, so, yeah, I completed that internship and learned a lot about, um, about using hand tools and doing farm work on a, on a really human scale without machinery, um, which has informed the way that I work now. I don't use a lot of machinery. I try to be savvy with the tools that I use to save my body, you know, to save from, you know, overly extending my physical being. But um, I don't use machines, and I don't know if I ever plan to. I, I'm not sure I want to be a large, large enough scale farmer to be using machinery. So that's definitely something that has informed my practice. So there you are with your, with your beautiful salad mix, um, squatting down in your biointensive beds, mm-hmm. and... You are encountering what, um, just so people can understand, what are the particular um, charms and delights of, of make building infrastructure in an urban area? And are there rats in your garden? Uh, <laughs> um, I think we, we have raccoons, but not rats. Um, yeah, we've been getting some pretty big munchings, big bites, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it's back we have raccoons. Um, no rats. But that's a good question about the uh, challenges of working in an urban environment. Um, 
I, I perceive of the problems less having to do with, you know, urban pests like pigeons and rats, but more having to do with uh, constraints on things like space. And, um, yeah, space specifically, I think, is, is one of the biggest issues for urban farmers. Um, like we were talking about before, um, we work in such a small space and for quite a while have understood that we need to expand, but expanding is really not very easy when you live in an urban environment because especially an urban environment like San Francisco, which is um, one of the most beautiful cities in the world, but it's also one of the most expensive cities in the United States. And um, the real estate pressures are very high. The development pressure on any piece of vacant land is just through the roof. So um, in terms of expansion and in terms of all the other people who want to do urban gardening and farming in San Francisco, it's a pretty tight scenario. So I'd say that's a really big challenge with our work, but also with, you know, just advancing the urban agriculture movement in general. Well, let's talk about that real estate. Well, well, first of all, it seems like you had pretty good beginner's luck. Yeah, really. (laughs) To find that land right easily. Mm -hmm. Um, But then explain a little bit, you know, why it's important to um, succeed in negotiating with landlords and, and what what the promise of agriculture holds, of urban yeah. agriculture, I mean. Yeah. And, and um, like, what does it entail? Like, what kind of a posture do you have to assume when you're going around looking for land? Um, I can tell you what, what postures I've been assuming, but we'll, we'll get to that after. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, I think in terms of postures, I think what I was saying before about having had some experience on a small scale so that now we have a little bit of credibility to speak to landlords. That has really helped us um, to be able to approach landlords this winter and say, hey, we already work with, with two landlords who are really happy with our work and they're really happy with what the way that we have increased their property value, brought joy to their tenants, um, maintain their, their weed problems in their backyards for them, things like that. Um, we've been able to go to landlords with that, with that experience and that um, credibility, I suppose. So that's been really helpful in terms of approaching people. Um, what was the rest? Oh, yeah, the, like what's important about urban agriculture and why we need to succeed. I think um, I think about that a lot, and I think one of the the major imports importances for me about urban agriculture is that. Um, Cities are centers of, of consumerism in that um, everything that we consume in the city is being brought to us from elsewhere. And I think I'm really concerned about the kind of identity that we have as being only consumers. Um, I know for me it's just so important that I regain just a little bit, even just a little bit of my, my power as a producer. And I... I venture to guess that it's the same for most people, that most people don't want to be completely dependent on everything being trucked into them, everything that they need to clothe, shelter, um, provide for their food needs. Um, So I think that's a really, you know, I know we'll never be able to grow all the food we need in the city. It's not realistic. But just that capacity to make a little little click in one's head from, oh, I'm not, I can make something for myself. I can coax something out of the ground, some food out of the ground for myself. So I think just having more sites in the city 
um, where people can get in touch with that human power is so important. And it's been pretty transformative in my life. Well, and, and not only for yourself, but it would feel just, in my experience, it seems like when people are tuned into that human power of um, production and, and are themselves like a channel of food and energy and, and generosity, that, that that makes you a um, better neighbor and a better friend and a better yeah. person to invite to a potluck. <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> and that's such a gift. Yeah, yeah, I think it definitely has a way of, of opening people up and making people more generous as well. Yeah, there's um, one thing I wanted to remind people who are um, tuning into our blog. We've just been blogging about this um, program in New York, and I think it was conceived of as like a performance art piece, but it's a month-long um, skill school. I think it's called trade school, mm-hmm. and you go and you learn trades and skills and like how to pickle things and and then other things that are not quite as trendy as pickling um, that have to do with um, vocations that are useful. And then, But you go to the school and you learn the thing that you're learning, but then you trade for the learning. So you'll bring, like, eggs or you'll bring um, hours of bookkeeping or you'll, you'll – it's, it's, it's a completely based on barter. Oh, wow. It's so beautiful. That sounds great. Also on the blog um, is the Little Seed Garden link, and Little Seed – Gardens um, just put up a Kickstarter uh, Kickstarter Seven, video. Little, for, little City Gardens. Oh, I'm sorry. Little Seed Gardens is up in New York. Oopsies. Oh, Little little Seed. Sorry, Little City Gardens. Will you explain what the Kickstarter thing is about, Ms. Brookie? Oh, sure. Yeah, so um, Caitlin and I just launched this fundraising campaign on a website called Kickstarter which is actually a really neat way to fundraise. It's, I, I've never been that interested in fundraising, but this has been a pretty fun project. Um, it's for artists, innovators, musicians, farmers, um, to raise money to make their dreams happen, I suppose. And um, you, put, you post your proposal, you post a, a video about what you're doing, and um, a series of rewards, and then just spread the word, and people can donate online through the website to your project if it sparks their interest or inspires them in any way. So we are trying to raise $15,000 in the next three months, and that is pretty much the bare minimum of what we need to um, as startup capital for our new expanded farm. So that's so this that's is a, big a business investment. Now. It's a business investment, exactly. It's um, we we've come to the conclusion over the year that we. Well, we have a business plan for our new farm, and we figured out that we can most likely, although it still is an experiment, sustain ourselves in terms of paying ourselves for our work and paying our material costs once we have a business up and running. Um, what we don't estimate that we can do is earn enough money to pay back a loan for startup capital. So we're trying alternative routes and saying, okay, we, we are um, – we're climbing an uphill road here trying to be urban farmers, and we need uh, support in the beginning to get the money that we need to invest in building the infrastructure of a farm. And then we have confidence in ourselves and, and in farming in general and in the community's desire for the food that we produce that we'll be able to sustain ourselves. I so that's confidence. the premise behind our Kickstarter proposal. 
Okay, so folks who would like to go and see that, they can Google along or they can go to the uh, Little City um, blog. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the URL of the Little City blog? It's www.littlecitygardens.com. So wow, Little City really Gardens good. with an S. It's hard. Plurals are hard. Um, it's also up on our blog. Either It's either already up or about to be up because um, we wanted to time it the right way. Um, but let's talk a little bit more about this land where you're moving to. What's the condition of the land right now, and, and what's the history of that land, and, and what's it going to take to bring it into uh, fruitful production? Um, well, so the land is actually, we're in negotiations. We don't have it for sure yet, although I'm very hopeful. Um, we're in negotiations with the property owner, and um, he is uh, has been really generous and open to talking with us so far um, it's a really, it's a large lot. It's three quarters of an acre, which is almost unheard of in San Francisco. There are a few, but not many. Um, this particular lot, uh, I, I've gotten mixed information actually about it. Some people say that it was built on, it did have houses on it 30 years ago that were then demolished. Um, and another person told me it has never been built on. So I, I have yet to go to the assessor's office and figure out what's true. But um, it's long and narrow. It's about 20 houses long. And um, it's, it is right above one of the inlets to Islias Creek, which is one of the main creeks that uh, flows into Mission Creek. So basically the water table on the land is really high, and you can see that now because it's winter. And um, for those of you who live in California, it's been raining a lot this winter. Um, so there are little parts of the land that, um, are slightly flooded, not not really bad, but you can tell that the water table is super high. So um, that's one issue. Um, as far as I know, the land doesn't have any toxins. There are no toxins in the soil. Um, but I think it is going to take a lot of work, uh, a lot of compost and a lot of manure, a lot of um, amendments to get the soil up to its full potential. Right now it's just this beautiful sea of uh, fennel going to seed and wild radish. It's, it's and are you lovely. going over there and spying on your um, spying on it and observing the butterflies dancing and the way that the water moves? And yeah, yeah, I've gone there probably about six times since I first discovered it. It actually has a fence up, um, and I try to resist trespassing, but have also trespassed a number of times. <laughs> And where are you going to get your compost and manure from, from the city? Um, well, that's a good question. I think we'll get it from a couple of different sources. There are uh, stables all around the city, horse stables. Not all around the city, but on the coast there are a few, and then in the East Bay there are a bunch. So they give away free manure. Um, and Caitlin and I love to be thirsty, so we'll probably just go get truckloads of that free manure and spread it. Um, compost, the city does give away compost, and we're planning on contacting them to see if they'll give us a free truckload. Um, but if we have to buy it, there are places, there are facilities that make good compost around the Bay Area, not in the Bay Area, not in the cities, but in the peri-urban surrounds. Um, okay, there's a couple things we haven't talked about yet that I think we should talk about. And one okay. of them is what happened in between OAEC and Little City Gardens? Okay, yeah. Um, good question. Well, so in the end of 2006, my apprenticeship at OAC was over, and I decided 
I, at that point, I was a little itchy to get to the city, and I don't know why. It was a little irrational because I also was pretty confident that I wanted to be a farmer, but I guess I was just missing the, you know, the, the dynamism and the social energy in the city. So I decided to move to San Francisco, and I moved into an apartment building in the Mission um, that had no gardening space at all. It had a concrete little backyard, and it's really most people who live in the city don't have even an inch of growing space, which is really difficult. Um, but I really wanted to garden, so I one day I got up on my roof and I did a little scan of the neighborhood hoping that I would see something awesome, and I did. I saw this really big backyard lot. It was like a double lot, um, and it was two, two doors down from my apartment building, but you couldn't see it from the street, only from my roof. So I was like, yes, oh, that's so great. And I, I was so excited about it that I didn't even think to, to hesitate about calling the landlord. Um, so I, I figured out who the landlord was by, by basically ringing the doorbell every day at the apartment building and then finally caught some people coming out of the garage. But I got his number and gave him a call and told him what I wanted to do. And he was surprisingly amenable. He just right off the bat said, you know, okay, how much of the space do you want to use? And I said, well, I, I'd like to use all of it if that's okay. And he said, oh, okay. And he gave me the, the code to the garage to get into the backyard before we'd even met in person. So he was a godsend. He's, I, really, I still consider him a, a little old man, Greek angel. He's a Greek man. Um, Part of it is that he is—he's very—he's old-fashioned. He has that kind of um, old-world sensibility of just making casual, making like you know, friendly arrangements without contracts. So um, that was a blessing for me, for sure. So then that spring, I just got started, and I, I invited a bunch of friends over, and we started double digging beds, and um, and I've been gardening there ever since. And then. Um, but so for the first two years, I was gardening for myself, just for my friends and family. And then somewhere in that second year, I met Caitlin, which was a major blessing. Um, she, is, she was coming to the city in a similar boat to me. She was um, wanting to be a farmer or a gardener, um, but she wanted to live in the city. She just moved to San Francisco looking for a place to garden. So it was just completely fortuitous that we met. And we started working together. And, and you then were at from the, there, oh, oh go ahead. <laughs> um, but you were at the same time you were starting gardens all over the city too. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, so at that time, while I was just doing gardening for myself in that space, I had a job working with a nonprofit the, called the Victory Gardens Project, and um, yeah, it, it was a really neat project. It was. Um, the idea behind it was to spur the backyard gardening movement in San Francisco, and it, we we got some funding from the Department of the Environment, and we were building. Our project was to build 15 backyard gardens in every single district of San Francisco. So it was taking into consideration the fact that San Francisco has really diverse microclimates, and um, gardening in each one of them is actually a completely different ballgame. So we were trying to model 
oh, you can do it in every single place in the city. You just have to get creative with where you are. So I was managing the, that program, and, um, and that was my paid job at the time. And you probably learned a lot and met a lot of cool people. I did. I learned a lot. I met a lot of cool people. Um, it was a really exciting project to work on. I also, through that project, um, started to become aware that I, I wasn't really interested in being primarily an educator, which is what that job was a lot, was being an educator. Um, I kind of I, I came to the awareness that I really wanted to be a farmer. I wanted to have that sensation of educating myself by starting something new, and I wanted to be able to be really fully engaged with growing food. So at the end of the year of doing that job, I, I just was really itching to be a farmer as opposed to a gardening educator. Yeah, and that, a lot of people talk about that, that when um, a lot of young farmers, you're starting your farm, you're working on your farm, you're busting your butt. There's so much time talking to talking to, to customers and marketing and on the phone, and people are always driving by and wanting to talk. And um, you have to be really extroverted in the beginning to help to establish your farm in the community, but that there's a special sacred thing about the quiet that has yeah. to also be cherished and protected. Yeah. And it's finding that balance and, like, community with other young farmers and, you know, time with your family and time with your animals and time with the quiet and the water and the and the plants and the sun. And that quiet time is a, a kind of psychic need of um, farmers, and we have to make space for it. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, we'll make space. <laughs> we'll make space. And, it, you know, I, I'm a social being as well. It's not that I need, um, you know, to be in solace on a farm every day. That's why I live in the city, because I love to be social as well, and I like dynamic projects. Um, it's just that I really I want to be fully engaged in growing food, and I, I don't want to feel that I have to accept a job specifically as a teacher or as a, an educator of, of kids or community members in order to farm. Um, I really feel like I want to want to have that right to farm and grow food and produce food for people and, and sell it and be paid for it um, without having to accept a different job title. I really want the job title, urban farmer. Well, I think you ha- have a right to that job title. And, yeah. and for those for those who are um, working for the many nonprofits that are close into cities that do garden-based educating or farm-based educating who have a really important mission yeah. to fulfill, um, there's room for both and there's room for us all. Yeah. Um, there's room for Brooke in the future <laughs> of Greenhorn's room. <laughs> I hope we will continue our long friendship and continue working together. Brooke as I'm sure you know, um, is the illustrator for Greenhorns and her drawings. Um, Grace, at this point, I think 38 different stickers. Wow. Um, and we're in means. the middle of a major revamp of the um, blog and the website, and a whole bunch more images are going up there, so that's really exciting. Um, and I look forward very much to seeing you in April in California, Ms. Brooke. Yeah. Thanks for joining us. Um, nice to talk to you, Severin. 
Nice to talk to you. And nice to talk to you all on the radio. I wanted to just quickly remind you that next weekend, um, which is the 20, 20, uh, something of 20, shoot, it's the next week, it's not this weekend, but next weekend in Vermont, um, there's NOFA Vermont and um, Greenhorns uh, and High Mowing Seeds and NOFA Vermont are all collaborating um, to put on a Young Farmers Mixer uh, at the Firehouse in downtown Burlington, Vermont. And it's free. Um, it's for young farmers, aspiring farmers, beginning farmers, not-so-young farmers, um, anybody who feels themselves to be a part of the young farming community. And there's beer and there's roasted uh, root vegetables and toasted nuts and sweetie, little sweet things um, and music and uh, craft activities for getting to know each other and networking and socializing and having a good old time. So I hope you'll join us for that. If you happen to be in the Northeast Kingdom or if you know folks that are in Vermont, give them a call and tell them they should connect with Greenhorns and other young farmers in Vermont. Um, And wherever you may be, thanks for joining us. This has been Greenhorns Radio, radio for young farmers by young farmers. Um, My name is Severin, and we'll be back again next week, sponsored by Hearst Family Ranch. Thank you, thank you so much. Bye-bye.